I'm Brendan Schickhardt, and welcome to the Nova Summer. Today on the program, I'm joined by my good friend James Cerny. James is an incredibly talented DJ, artist, and performer, and he is my co-star in Eli Rary's interactive movie, Hard Decisions. James and I sat down, actually, in Eli's apartment, where we filmed Hard Decisions, in the middle of December 2015. I've been wanting to talk to James for a while. I guess I've always been a little fascinated by him. He's a unicorn, and he's self-created and self-defined in a way that most people aren't. Without further ado, here's James Cerny. All right, I'm here with my good friend, talented actor and DJ, nightlife producer, James Cerny. Hi, James. Hello. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. Glad to hear it. What are you drinking, James? Uh, this is a Monster Energy drink. Zero sugar, zero calories. And it's so festively decorated. It is. It's this new red flavor that I'm really into. It's like tastes like a Hawaiian punch. Red is one of my favorite flavors. Mm-hmm. I don't know you. Yeah. It's one of the better ones. <laughs> um... James is here with me today for many reasons. He's my fake boyfriend in a movie that we were in recently together, mm-hmm. uh, Hard Decisions. Why don't we start about with uh, how awesome it is to be my fake boyfriend and go. Oh, uh, being your fake boyfriend uh, for that series of weekends when we were shooting uh, last spring was um, an experience that I, I don't think could ever be replicated. Um, and I wouldn't care to replicate it even if I had the opportunity uh, because I treasure those moments so much um, well said that was a really fun experience actually shooting that and I'm so happy with the way it came out me too you know I um, I kind of hate everything I do I'm super critical mm. of myself and um, like the further out we got from filming it, the more I was convinced I was going to hate it. Right. Yeah. And I, when we saw it at, um, That's precinct. precinct. So, yeah. I loved it. Like, yeah. I was so proud of it. Eli's. Yeah, he, he put it together in the way that it was structured and the, the editing, uh, it was just really light and sweet and funny. It was just enjoyable and entertaining, but also completely, uh, it was just lovely, I don't know. So, um, what drew you to Hard Decisions? Why did you want to do it? Uh, well, I had been talking to Eli a lot about it, uh, about his ideas for it. I think he and I were, sort of, had the conversation where he, he, he was batting around ideas, wanting to do this, this small, kind of, screen, almost like a TV show, like a sitcom. Um, dealing with these issues of HIV, relationships, and not really knowing which direction he wanted to take it, and I think that's sort of where I, where the idea sort of started to come about doing a, a choose-your-own-adventure uh, approach to it, because that way you didn't have to, you didn't have to settle on one narrative trajectory, which I appreciate because. Uh, making decisions is hard for me it's like <laughs> from a creative standpoint it's a, it's useful for people who are neurotic because 
because you don't have to make a decision. You can go with all of the decisions um, as a writer. Um, and so, what was the question again? Like, how did I get involved with it? <laughs> well, really, like, what attracted you to it? Really? Uh, well, I like Eli. I like, I like his ideas. I was excited. I just uh, had my first kind of on-camera acting experience uh, with another film. And my friend Jim Hansen directed You're Killing Me, um, which was at AdFest this year. And it's been shown at a lot of different film festivals throughout this year. And that just... Uh didn't they just get a release deal? Or? Yeah, they, just, they, they sold it to a distributor, so uh, my understanding is that it's going to just be more widely available on like streaming video platforms such as I know Amazon Prime or HBO, I don't know, Netflix, but I think you'll be able to buy it on iTunes. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was my first time acting uh, in front of the camera. Uh, and I had a great experience with it, and I was interested in doing more, and Eli came up to me with the idea, and I knew that I'd be working with a bunch of friends, and it was fun the first time I did it, so I was on to do it again. Um, and what's uh, You're Killing Me about? You're Killing Me uh, is written and directed by Jim Hansen, who writes and directs the Chloe Savini videos that are on YouTube starring Drew Droby as Chloe Savini. Good evening, um, America. Yeah. I'm uh, Chloe Savini. Yeah. Um, there are these silly satirical comedic shorts that have become really widely watched. Um, and he's done a lot of different video projects. That's what he's most well known for. But this is his first time doing a full-length film. And it's um, more grounded in reality. It's uh, still a comedy. It's about a young guy, gay guy who is in Hollywood, a struggling writer, trying to puff up his own career by doing these home-produced YouTube videos with his friends, who are also comedians, um, aspiring actors, and he finds himself in a relationship with a guy who is a serial killer. And uh, the serial killer is very upfront and pathologically honest about who he is and what he's about. He's a serial killer. He's about killing people. Um, and But because the protagonist, because the hero is so self-involved and so surrounded by people who are steeped in this culture of sarcasm and exaggeration and hyperbole and not saying what you really mean or always having two meanings behind everything, he always thinks that this guy's honesty is this big elaborate joke, like, oh, in quotation marks, I'm a serial killer. So he doesn't really believe that his boyfriend is a serial killer, and while his boyfriend is going around behind his back murdering all his friends one by one. And he doesn't know where why his friend's not calling him back, where have they gone? How come Jenny and Tony and Mike didn't show up to my dinner party? And his boyfriend will be like, well, that's because I killed him and killed them. He's like, oh, you're so funny. Um, so it progresses to the point where he finally realizes that his boyfriend is indeed a killer, through. I haven't that. seen it. That's brilliant. Like, yeah, it's really good. It's really funny. Um, the cat. There's so many funny people in it. It was like Drew Drogi, Jim Henson, Jeffrey Self, Mindy Cohn from Facts of Life, Natalie from Facts of Life was in it. It was very exciting to have my first movie be with one of the Facts of Life girls. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it was a really cool experience. And you know, I think my part is smaller. I play the straight heterosexual lunky personal trainer boyfriend to one of the girls in the movie. I die horribly. Um, and it was a really fun role to, sh role to shoot. I was nervous about playing 
straight, um, but I guess I did okay with that. And one of the things that I loved about this part that I had in Eli's piece was I still was kind of, you know, this guy with a body, but I didn't have to um, play into, I wasn't asked to butch it up at all. I wasn't asked to fem it up either, but I was allowed to sort of do what I prefer to do, which is kind of vacillate between those two poles <laughs> as my emotions dictate. Um, I was going to ask you, how much of yourself do you see in the Jeff character? I mean, it was it was written for me, and like the Jeff character, Jeff is a DJ and go-go dancer. Um, I have done all of that. Uh, I work in nightlife, I produce parties, I throw parties, I go-go dance at parties. Um, DJing is what I love to do, and I've actually kind of taken a step back from go-go dancing so I can do more of that. Um, and I think Jeff is a, not quite as thoughtful a person as I am. I think he's a little bit more in the moment and not caught up in his own head as much as I might be. Um, but other than that, I thought it was... I understood him. I understood where he was coming from throughout every scene that we shot. I uh, really liked your take on him. He's very comfortable in his own skin. Like, he's not worried about expressing himself or being vulnerable or being honest about his emotions. Are those things true of you? Uh, I recognize... I, I am... I do express... I am frequently maybe over-vulnerable. <laughs> I talk about my feelings a lot. I'm very in touch with them. Um, I sometimes blab too much about what I'm feeling on Facebook, but I don't necessarily feel... I recognize that there's ramifications to that, that people don't respond to that well all the time. Yeah. Um, don't respond to it well in general or don't respond to it well from a guy. Um, it causes me some anxiety to be that way, but I also don't really feel like I have any ability to rein it in. I have no interest in reining it in. I'd feel worse about not being myself than I would being a self that won't please everyone, basically. I think all my friends stopped following me on Facebook this year. Really? <laughs> yeah. Like they didn't unfriend me or anything. Yeah. No, when you get to the point where the only people who are liking your statuses are people who you don't know in real life. Yes. That. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, yeah. I think maybe we're doing it wrong. How long have you been in Los Angeles now? Uh, it'll be four years in February. Four years in February. Yeah. It's about about the same length that I've been here. Really. But you were in San Francisco before that, and so I assume there was you spent some time back and forth. Well, yeah. I came here from Boston, and like the, the, the difference culturally between Los Angeles and Boston, I, I don't think you could find. <laughs> they are very different places. <laughs> I mean, they're both on the coasts, so, and they're both big cities, big liberal cities, uh, I would say, uh, politically. But uh, the, the lifestyles and, and the modalities of getting through your day are very different here than they are in Boston. How so? And that was an adjustment. Boston is uh, a politically liberal, Massachusetts is a politically liberal state. We had gay marriage way before all the rest of you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, politically, it's liberal, but behaviorally, it's very conservative. The Puritan ethic um, still dominates. People are more inhibited, I think, there, especially in, I noticed it particularly in gay culture. Um, it 
it's very buttoned up. Um, I, I used to say in Boston that sort of like the whole idea of Boston is you can do whatever you want to do here, just please don't do it. <laughs> Everyone theoretically like believes in these very liberal ideas, but in their own personal practice, they're very safe and they don't take a lot of risks. They're frugal and conservative and careful people. Um, and it can take a lot, like socially, it's a hard nut to crack. People aren't very open and inclusive towards new people a lot. I think partially that has to do with the fact that there's so many schools there, so many people in their teens and 20s are there because they're there for grad school, they're working hard, a lot of people there for medical school, so they don't have a lot of time to socialize, and it's very kind of transitory city. People are there for four years, people are there for six years, so you see a lot of people come and go. Um, and that makes it challenging for a real strong culture to develop of people who are in it for the long run. And how long were you there? Did you grow up there? I grew up in Massachusetts. I was living in the Boston, the greater Boston area for about eight years. And uh, why did you decide to come to Los Angeles? Uh, the person that I was dating, uh, you know, I was, so I was living in Boston for about six years and then I started DJing, throwing parties, um, and what I was doing there, uh, uh, the approach to nightlife that my partners and I had was kind of novel for the city and it took off really quickly and uh, I was doing, I, I went to school in New York, I went to college in New York, I went to NYU for my undergrad um, and so was ex that was where my ex first exposure to nightlife and real urban queer culture developed um, and I was, previous to that I had no notion of the fact that within gay culture, you could have countercultures and subcultures, and uh, that there was more to queer culture than the sort of gay pride parade circuit party um, ground zero that everybody sees uh, when they first come out. Um, and then I got to New York, and my first experiences there were disappointing because I was going to these big gay mega clubs like Palladium and Twilo, and it was all of these big muscly Adonises and I was, you know, 127 pounds and had really long black hair and was very androgynous looking and nobody was interested in me and I couldn't, I thought I would come to New York and like all of the stuff that I didn't get when I was in high school in terms of being able to date or meet boys or, or have like a normal romantic life. I thought that I was going to go to New York and all that was just going to happen right away. And then I got there and I go to these clubs and all of a sudden we're exposed to, oh, there's this whole new hierarchy of values and superficial judgments that I have to contend with about, you know, not being muscular enough or not being butch enough or not having the right shoes or the right sunglasses or the right job and having to be super charming and likable and friends with all the drag queens. And that was really discouraging. And uh, so I spent my first six months in New York kind of miserable. And then I had a job on weekends working at a snack bar at a off-off-off-Broadway theater. And there was a drag show 
going on there um, that was a spoof of the movie Single White Female, and it was called Double Wide Female. It took place in a trailer park in a double wide trailer, and it starred uh, Jackie Beat, Sherry Vine, and this sort of devilish Al Pacino-looking guy who's very intriguing to me named Mario Diaz. (laughs) And he was recently, he was maybe like 10 years older than me. He was new to New York himself, and he was really quickly making his name as a club promoter. Not in Chelsea, not in the West Village, where all the mainstream gay stuff was, but in the East Village, which is much edgier, much more dangerous. That's where Wigstock took place. That's where you would walk through the park and see people shooting up, and people getting knifed and get mugged and stuff like that. It was a bad area of town. You didn't want to go past Avenue A, but Mario Diaz was prancing around Avenue A and Avenue B and doing all these crazy queer uh, parties that were really crazy in the post-AIDS era because they were super sex positive. They're all about dark rooms and engaging in all of that crazy post-Stonewall, pre-AIDS, 70s gay culture that so much of what I had grown up hearing about as a, as a teenager in the, at the height of the AIDS crisis was supposed to be really bad and really wrong. But he celebrated and said, no, this is good. Sex is good. We're sexual beings. You can't desexualize ourselves because of a fucking illness. You can still be safe and you can still do all these things and you don't have to submit to these standards of straight culture, you know, mainstream gay culture. And, um, so I started going to parties that he threw and they were so influential to me I had such a it was where I really had my awakening as a as a gay gay guy um, at the time and then I went back to Boston and there was none of that um, there was none of that it was just you know these kind of sterile bars with videos playing Britney Spears and pop stars um, and there seemed to be just like no sophistication or subversion or underground options for gay people who didn't fit a really narrow definition, a really narrow set of characteristics. So my friend Nate, who is a DJ and I, uh, had been talking about this for a while, talking about the frustration of having fun parties to go to, and then we finally decided we are going to throw our own. Um, we decided to do a disco party because we're both really into the era of disco, the like the, this fantasy we had of gay life um, in New York and San Francisco at the time as being this really hedonistic, liberated uh, time that deserved reevaluation. Um, and so, what better soundtrack to that than the music of the time? So, um, just did a crash course in learning about the Paradise Garage and all the music that was played there and ripped a lot of mp3s from file sharing services and uh with absolutely no background in music or uh real particular prior passion for dance music or dance culture or or raves or music or beat matching or turntable skills i just downloaded a cheap program online and i was a dj uh like so many people in the 2000s and um we did this party with these ads that came from 1970s versions of Playboy and we were able to market it completely on Facebook for free um, at a small little bar in in Central Square in Cambridge and the first party we had um, 
everybody came out because they were really curious about what was going on and we were playing all the disco and people were having a great time and then at midnight I had like five or six guys I pulled them into the back stripped them down naked and uh, put them in towels like they were in a bathhouse and then we'd turn on a smoke machine and like all of a sudden at midnight there were all these guys dancing around just wearing towels and here in LA I guess like that's just West Hollywood on a Friday night in Boston that was like <laughs> giving people an attack of the vapors like people were clutching their like fainting like like shocked that this was going on guys dancing on tables it was uh it, it was so lewd and lascivious for <laughs> Boston taste, but people loved it, and it just became a thing. And uh, I experienced within a couple of months this like sudden rise in profile, and we were getting written up by all the local papers, and it was fun and exciting, but and exhilarating um, to be getting that attention for what we were doing. But it also was a lot compared to the actual amount of time that we put into developing ourselves to have, be thrust into the spotlight without much practice and stuff, I felt a little bit unprepared. I felt a little bit, especially musically, like I didn't really know what I was doing. I just, I guess I had okay taste, but in terms of the technology I was using, um, my knowledge level, I was just like scouring, just like, oh, this sounds good, I'll play it, this sounds good, I'll play it. I didn't know a lot about the history and like the, and so talking to other DJs, I just came off like a flip. But I also was getting, you know, my pictures posted on Tumblr all over the world and getting approached by people who are doing parties in other cities, be like, oh, come and do my party in New York, come and do this, we hear about you, we hear you're a great DJ. And I felt like it was moving too fast, and that I was bound to just disappoint myself, and if I really wanted to be serious about it, I needed to take a step back, um, and maybe get out of that situation, get out of Boston, and start from scratch, from the bottom, um, someplace else. So I moved here to L.A., and um, I had some friends who lived here already. Um, I heard it was really inexpensive. There was a lot going on here. Uh, LA was an up-and-coming place to go. Um, I visited. I liked it. And so that's how I got here. That's a long story. That um, It's a good story. I've known you, I mean, almost as long as you've lived here, I guess. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> we met at Cafeteria. Did we meet at Cafeteria? Cafeteria, like the evil. I remember... Uh, our, our mutual friend, Aram Kirikosian, mm-hmm. had told me about you before I'd met you. Um, I don't know how you guys met, but he, uh, he raved about you, about mm-hmm. how awesome you are. And I was, I was curious to meet you. But you know what's really funny is that Mario Diaz story. I had no idea, because <laughs> the first time I snuck into a gay bar before I was mm-hmm. 21, it was to see Jackie B and Mario Diaz in Dirty Sanchez mm-hmm. at Riches, which is this terrible gay dance club in San Diego. Sorry, Riches. And, um, you know, San Diego's like the Boston of the West Coast. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, it is. I can vouch for that. And, you know, that's my hometown. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, when I was a kid, like I came out when I was 16, but I was so above gay culture in my mind Mm -hmm. because it was like you know Britney Spears on on the TV and like uh, terrible drag queens Mm -hmm. and like I was like I you know I I it's sad isn't I feel like there's something that's happened where what used to be a a a camp appreciation for kind of bad trashy culture Mm -hmm. like a sophisticated I know that this is bad but I'm liking it anyways because I can dissect the badness in such a brilliant way sure has just somehow f- 
flipped into a wholehearted appreciation of badness without any critical critical perspective at all. Um, <laughs> why do you think that is? I don't know. <laughs> I don't, you know, I think that... Fix gay culture for me, James. <sighs> I mean, we, we, we lost a generation. And yeah. I think a lot... Uh, what happened is the whole message wasn't transmitted because of that. Yeah. Parts of the message were transmitted from generation to generation. It's not like we didn't lose an entire generation. Not every gay guy died of AIDS in the 70s, but a lot of people did, and a lot of the most brilliant, creative people who were working at that time did, unfortunately. Yeah. And yeah. something. so in the process, something was watered down. Like the, the richness and the fullness and the diversity of whatever we want to call the gay perspective was not... It, it doesn't exist yeah. anymore. In a, in a, you know, a, a whole generation wasn't wiped out, but it was decimated. Like yeah. a tenth of us were killed, and it was, the hardest hit were our most forward thinkers, our yeah. most adventurous artists, our most like daring uh, political visionaries. Yeah, and, and everybody that was left was afraid. Was or, deeply traumatized. Yeah. I mean, like, like nobody got out unscathed. Like, right. yeah. Nobody gets out alive. Yeah. Um, so now you're here, and mm-hmm. um, uh, for those that don't know you, you're no longer 120 pounds with long black hair. Right. You are. You're a beefcake. You know. You're yeah. a, a stud muffin. You've okay. got you've got stud baked right into you. Okay. Um, I actually, I mean, I, I, uh, I've seen pictures of you from um, an earlier time, mm-hmm. and you were a kind of gothy, adorable nerd boy. Yeah. Um, explain yourself, sir. Like you happened? have transformed. What, what happened? happened? Um, I'd like to say that this is just all like it was just this natural thing that happened. I just, like, <laughs> I just started hacking on muscle like naturally, and sort of just that Los Angeles Yeah, it was, it was Los Angeles sunshine, and I. Just did Runyon one day, and all of a sudden, like, everything was looking a little bit bigger, and just did Runyon again, and again, and again. Now, um, yeah, when I was, I was not a, a, a boy's boy, uh, never interested in sports or athletics or outdoorsy stuff. I was always wanted to be inside, reading a book, or doing music, acting in plays, um, had a great appreciation and fascination with all things feminine, um, played with dolls, and like I said, like, you know, I, I, you come to, you, you come up in this world and you, you, you get out of the house and you get into gay culture and you realize, well, and not just gay culture, but wider culture in general, uh, I, I think that guys who present a more feminine exterior have a lot more challenges being listened to and taken seriously by the wider world. Um, and I went to school for uh, theater and acting, and, you know, um, the creative arts are liberal in some ways, but very conservative in others, because there's always an eye towards pleasing the audience, and the audience is the mainstream. Um, and we would hear about these things when I was in theater school, a lot of the other acting schools in the country engaged in this practice called sophomore slaughter, um, 
which was you would have your first two years of basic training at whatever acting school you went to, if you went to Yale or Emerson or Juilliard. Um, and at the end of the sophomore year, you would have like a review and like a third of each section would be cut and then that third would have to go on to, I don't know, be teachers or flight attendants or something. And uh, generally speaking, sophomore at Slaughter was always code for there go the fat girls and the fags. So if you, by the end of your sophomore year, hadn't learned to get your weight under control or get your feminine mannerisms out of control, it was like, take a hike. And they didn't do that at NYU. And we were always like told, we don't do that here at NYU. It was, it was this really beneficent thing. But there were definitely still messages sent out implicitly that the students who were preferred and were favored and were given encouragement were the ones who fit into certain highly marketable boxes and highly marketable bodies. And that's when I started feeling the pressure to adjust myself and adjust my presentation uh, to, to doing that and start going to the gym and working out. And um, it did make things easier for me. It made things easier for me in school, sure, but it made easier, things easier for me ordering a coffee and finding a date. And uh, just generally people feel more comfortable talking to somebody who whose gender is very clear to them than somebody than a kid who has long hair and paints his nails and doesn't have visible facial hair and maybe a girl and maybe a boy and I don't know. Um, it's confusing to people and I wasn't at that time in my life, like I wasn't one of these people who I, I don't get off on uh, throwing people off balance. I want to make people feel comfortable and so and I wanted to connect with people, so I, yeah, I started adjusting my presentation to do that. Um, and I feel very conflicted about that. Very conflicted about that. I feel conflicted about that because I see that, that I worry that I'm giving in to something and I'm only reproducing a, a system of values that is going to... Uh, continue to negatively affect kids like me who are coming up in the world. Um, I don't know. I, I'm sorry to cut you off. Yeah. Uh, but the better I've come to know you, kind of the more fascinated I've been by you. In, in, in part, I think, because I sense in you, or I see in you, someone who is self-created in a way that I, I guess I suppose I am too like we were both you know nerdy faggots who mm -hmm. decided we wanted to be cool kids and we like figured out how to do that like we cracked that code I don't think um, we're traitors to like the nerdy kids that we were like, right. we are an example to the you know and what I I especially appreciate about you is I've never once felt like you you take your beauty seriously like you don't I don't feel I mean like you clearly put a lot of effort into it like you're, okay. you're, you're muscly in a way that I am not mm -hmm. but you um, I've never seen you look down on somebody who wasn't buff or exclude somebody that wasn't beautiful or cool I've only ever seen in you like somebody who extends bridges outward um, and I think that's the best thing you can be for that nerdy kid you used to be is to like, you know, I guess like Mario did for us, like be an example yeah. and like, uh, like 
because Martin did the exact same thing that we did. Yeah. You know, he was a nerdy goth kid that yeah. decided he wanted to be cool. Yeah, I think that, uh, uh, and that's what I would say, and I don't, I don't, I, I say all that. Visually, yes, I, like, I've kind of conformed myself to this idea of masculine desirability that it is widely understood uh, to widely preferred, I guess. Um, I don't really participate, although I do work in that, if I am a DJ and I have, you know, used my body as a go-go dancer and a model to promote myself, um, I don't socially participate in events that give bodies like mine preferential treatment or cater to bodies like mine. I just recently was at a at a, at a, at a after-hours sort of warehouse event here in L.A. Um, I go to a lot of those as a DJ. There aren't a lot of gay ones here in L.A. for some reason. Um, but I go to a lot of them to hear other DJs. Most of them are mixed. And the thing that I love about, I'm so passionate about, about the underground dance culture here in L.A. or just in general with house music and techno and everything is that it's... Uh, these spaces that are created in warehouses sort of beyond the limits of the, the law and the regulations of the city always tend to be places where these sort of bullshit social distinctions of class and race and body type and beauty are left at the door and people go and you're just with people who are there for the music and love it and it doesn't matter what you look like or what your day job is or what color you are. If you're there because you care about the music, you're part of the family, and people treat you with a, uh, on the same level, with respect and happiness and joy to be there. And I was at a gay kind of warehouse event where I didn't feel any of those values in effect. It seems it was highly populated by people who clearly subscribe to a very, again, narrow idea of what uh, what sexy is, what the right body is, and what the wrong body is. And um, it wasn't a place where everybody would feel comfortable. And I, I don't like that so many gay social functions still operate on those principles. I think it's really I'm curious. shockingly retrogressive. And I don't... I, uh, I, th- I think we overvalue masculinity. I think, th- th- as a culture, masculine attitudes, masculine body types, masculine—you know—mask for mask. It's com- become a cliche. I don't even know why. Like, it's not groundbreaking for me to be making this statement, but the fa- the statement's been made again and again and again and again. It doesn't seem to have any impact. People still just just want that, and it extends to just really unhealthy behaviors. I think uh, a lot of these guys who look healthy are you know, putting lots of chemicals in their bodies to make themselves look this way. And that's not good for you. That isn't healthy. My ex, Bradley, you know, yeah. when we broke up, uh, a friend of mine, a friend of ours, said to me, um, I saw him at, like, at, at the fault line, and mm-hmm. he said, you know, hey, how are you doing? I heard about you guys. Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm great. You know, I'm just looking forward to, like, losing the boyfriend weight. You know, it's okay. little, like... Um, this little belly that I got yeah. from sitting around like eating takeout yeah. like, a, like a good boyfriend does and um, he went directly to well if you need a little something extra just a little something to help you with your workout and 
took me a minute to realize that I, I was being offered performance enhancing drugs. Oh, okay. In a way that I never had been before. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> like getting ready for the big game. I mean, like on the subject of, of that, I don't want to be too judgmental because I also see gender expression as something that everyone should have an opportunity to play with as much as they want. Um, and the the hormones that you take to become big and muscular are the opposite hormones of the ta- of, of that people take to feminize their body. Um, so I like to think that we live in a world where you can express your gender to the fullest extent of however you think it should be. So if you want a more male body or a more female body and you want to take hormones to push yourself in either one of those directions, um, that's okay with me. Um, but I think that you should be self-aware of the fact of what you're, of that's what you're doing, mm-hmm. that it's sort of a, a costuming in a way that you're altering your, your physical appearance and it's fine. But I don't, I don't think that most people who are doing it are like, they're just like, I want to get big. They're not like being like, well, I want to right. There's a, you know, have the body that fits my inside. Like, I think that's just more of a nuanced way of looking at it. I think that gender they don't think of it as a gender issue. I think it is a gender issue. There's a great little Buddhist proverb that goes something along the lines of, like, if you have an itch, scratch it, but it's better to not have the itch in the first place. Right. And, you know, I think that applies to this. Like, it's, you know, we should all feel free to strive to be the person we want to be. Right. There's a level past that that's accepting who you are Right, I mean, yeah, I'm loving that kid. I'm happy with the way I look. I present myself the way I look like to be. Who I am, frankly, I, I, like if I was to present myself exactly as I feel I am on the inside, I would probably be doing everything I could to look like Selma Blair. But because that's who I'm really, who I feel like. Like right now, sitting here, feeling, talking to you, when I see myself on the outside of the couch. I see Selma Blair talking to you, like from *Cruel Intentions*. Kind of like cute, but like kind of awkward and like feminine, but like not really. Getting it. That's like that's me. Like like. like that's, your, that's your that's your lady skirt down. That's my yeah, Selma Blair. It's okay though. I you know, but like the the this is a but it's this body works for me in what I do, and it also works for me because you know maybe yes, maybe it opens some doors that are unfairly closed to other people. And what I like to think, what I tell myself, is that when I get in those doors. And then I'm given a little bit of authority, and I'm given the opportunity to watch the door for other people. I can let in the people who wouldn't have been let in before. I really make an effort when I'm curating DJs or performers for an event to think about diversity, to seek out a mix of, you know, whether it's DJs or dancers, um, of different types of people, different bodies, different ranges of experience and different perspectives and trying to have it be a mixed platform. So along those lines, you are throwing a, a new party, you just had it, right? Yeah, I'm doing a f- couple of different things right now. I just did a party on Saturday night uh, at Fault Line. Uh, I DJed a party called Father Figure, um, 
with my friends Chris and Victor. Uh, and it's, it's like a narrow thing. It's like daddy fetish party, kind of. That's the theme for it. So it's probably not the best example for an exclusive event. It's very specific for a different specific type of person who's into a specific kind of thing. It's turned on by a specific kind of thing. That's fine. Hey, Dad. And uh, I'm also doing a uh, kind of curating a, a Sunday afternoon event at a bar downtown, a new gay bar called Bar Mattachine, um, called The Wind Up. And it's me and then a rotating cast kind of family of DJs that I've been working with. There's a lot of daytime drinking events here in LA, um, but uh, the sort of music that I'm specifically going for, which is a little bit more left field disco and house and techno, uh, more progressive underground sounds. Um, not as poppy, not as circuity as you might find at other events. So I wanted to have a sun Sunday where you could regularly go and anticipate that it was going to be a certain level of quality of music. Um, so I've been working with about six DJs, guys, girls, gay, straight, and we're going to be doing that every Sunday at Bar Magazine. It's called The Wind Up, and I'm really excited about that. Um, so that's, that's my little baby right now. That sounds great. Mm -hmm. Well, it looks like we are approaching our finish line. Um, I just had one more question for mm -hmm. you. Um, if God sent, says the atheist, God sent that um, some young faggot uh, looking up to us the way that like we looked up to Mario Diaz sees what you're doing and like is inspired to do what you do. Like, what advice do you have for him? I would say, I mean, it's the same advice that I would have for anybody, which is really, you know, take your cues from a houseplant. Like, houseplants are very, they don't have a lot of brains, but they have intuition that is sadly lacking in most people, which is that they understand where the nutrition and where the good stuff comes from. It comes from the light. It doesn't come from the shady side of the room. It comes from the light side of the room. Go to where the light is. Go to where you get in the... The corners of your life where you're receiving encouragement and positivity, those are the people and those are the places where you should be growing towards and devoting all of your resources and listening to. You should, the people who are giving you negativity and telling, giving you a list of reasons why you shouldn't do something and who will never be pleased by you and aren't interested in you, those are not the people you should be bending over backwards to try to please all the time. Yes, it's good to try and push yourself, but grow towards the light. It was when I learned to do that, when I stopped wasting my time on people who are never going to think what I was doing was cool. And I still have to remind myself of that sometimes. Yeah. Still, you know, like working here, like, I throw a lot of parties, I DJ a lot, but there's a lot of things I'd like to be doing or people that I'd like to be working with or circles that I'd like to be involved in that are closed off to me and people who, you know, are, are, are not interested in working with me. And it's frustrating sometimes because I'm like, I think what you're doing is so cool, like, talk to me, but... You can't obsess over that stuff. You have to remind yourself of like what's good, where you're wanted, where you're needed, and, and what you love, especially, because the biggest light is the one that's inside you. you. Feed yourself and do what really matters to you. And eventually, even if the world isn't on your side, it'll come around. That's been my experience. It's just one, one Selma Blair's experience in this big bad world. So. <laughs> well, buddy, that was... <laughs> Excellent advice that I wish somebody would have given me when I was 22. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Thank you for having me.
And there you are. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with James. I certainly did. And if so, do me a favor. Give me a few stars on iTunes and maybe some likes on Facebooks. That stuff helps out more than you know. Until next time, homos, this is Brendan Shukart.